and my BlackBerry starts buzzing and vibrating, and I go careening off the expressway, and I look, it's Alan Schumann from Disney, and he's sending me an email that says, how fast can you respond? And I said, I just pulled off the highway, and I'm responding in less than 60 seconds, so can we now please have the contract? Hello and welcome. I'm Pablo Caslimas, and you are listening to The Art of Biz, a show where we share the stories of distinct entrepreneurs, along with their successes, failures, and the lessons they've learned along their journeys. Today, I'm really excited to introduce our guest, Bob Miles. He's a renowned international keynote speaker and author and is known for being the world's leading expert on Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway and their management style. Thank you for joining us today, Bob. Thanks for having me. Um, So Bob, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started and your background in this space and being an expert on Warren Buffett? Well, I asked myself a simple question. Who is the best investor? And is he available, is he or she available to invest money on my behalf? And I quickly realized it was Warren Buffett. I then uh, read uh, Roger Lowenstein's excellent biography titled Buffett, The Making of an American Capitalist. And it really spoke to me, so much so that in 1995, 1996, when the A shares, Berkshire Hathaway A shares, Buffett's company, publicly traded, uh, were trading at $30,000, and the B shares then trading at $1,000, now split adjusted $20 was my buy-in. I went out to Omaha, Nebraska, where he has his annual meeting, and I was blown away by a a billionaire next door who was answering questions uh, straightforward without any financial gobbledygook and received the best financial education that I've ever gotten from anyone who was telling, sharing things which he believed to be the truth, which I now know to be the truth, which is Wall Street will sell you anything you're willing to buy. Wall Street is the legal pickpocket of the average American, uh, the average investor, I should say. And uh, that just rang true to me. And I uh, purchased uh, some A shares and B shares and made, made it my largest holding. It still is. And um, then I started writing and then I accidentally did a blog and accidentally did a book and then now I'm teaching. Um, so it was all kind of following my passion, which any entrepreneur should, um, should do. Uh, just follow your passion. And now, uh, 25 years later, um, A shares are 300,000 and B shares went from 20 to 200,000. So I've made uh, 10 times on my money, about 12% a year annualized. So not my best investment, but um, an investment that I know and understand and uh, recommend uh, people uh, consider investing in and owning, not trading. Great, Bob. Thank you so much.
Um, so we're going to start off this episode. We also have Marty here in the studio, and we'd love to have you ask him some questions about his journey uh, before we dive into deeper into your story. Well, uh, Marty, I, I'm curious to see whether or not you uh, share some of the similarities of the Berkshire Hathaway or Buffett CEOs that I've interviewed and profiled in my second book, The Warren Buffett CEO, if uh, you share some common traits in that what traits do you think you have as an entrepreneur that eventually led to your success? I think the most important traits that are critical for the success of an entrepreneur, and I feel like I developed them, I don't know that I started with all of them. Uh, the first one was perseverance. I knew that I couldn't fail. Failure was not an option and that I had to plow ahead no matter how great the adversity at certain times. The second one was I had to deploy the art of active listening constantly. Students ask me what was the best course that you took when you were a student at University of Florida? And I said, well, it was actually a course that I took off campus while I was a student. I volunteered for the Suicide Crisis Center to be uh, on their hotlines answering phones, but for four months before I was allowed to pick up the phone and answer a call, I had to go through an intensive course on active listening. How to be able to get people to open up and speak and how to use empathy to get people to feel comfortable opening up and speaking and telling you what they think and feel. And that's critical whether you're a leader dealing with employees or you're a salesperson or a leader working with major clients or you're working with creditors and suppliers. You have to be able to find out what their needs are, what their wants are, what's important to them so that you can address them. And the only way you can do that is through active listening, by getting in touch with what they're thinking and feeling when you're asking a question. I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. No, <laughs> um, is that active listening, is that something you're born with or do you think that's a skill set that a person can acquire? I think it's absolutely one you can learn. I don't know that you can learn perseverance. I don't know that you can learn passion about doing something, but you can learn active listening. When you ask a yes or a no question, you don't have a dialogue. You ask a question that answers in yes or no or multiple choice and you're going to get a quick finite answer. But when you ask somebody a question and, for instance, I use the analogy uh, as follows. I used it in a class recently. How I, deploy, how I would deploy active listening in a business situation. Let's suppose that I was trying to work with a cl new client to get their service business, to have a service contract to repair all the equipment 
that they have that maybe somebody else sold to them, but I want to get my foot in the door with that company. So I would say to them, you know, if I could have a few minutes of your time, I really would like to ask you whether our company can provide you with all of the service and repairs required for audiovisual equipment in your organization. And they would say, you know, we're really happy with the supplier we have. So there's really not much need here. And I would say, well, I understand that. But let me ask you this. Is there anything that you wish that they could do just a little bit better? And the customer says, well, you know, I wish that they would get the repair done on the first visit rather than have to come back a second or third time. That frustrates me a little bit. And if I responded back, gosh, that's got to be really frustrating and time-consuming and um, drive you a little bit crazy. Darn right it does. It absolutely drives me crazy because it burns up my time and I have to spend more time on it. By parroting back an emotion, you're opening a floodgate. You're you're targeting through empathy what they're feeling, not what they're saying, what they're feeling. And once you've connected with that, you have a very solid relationship. So I think what you're saying is, Marty, is that through active listening, you can find out the pain points of your customers or your potential customers. And then by active listening, you can address those pain points and be the solution and therefore win a part of their business to prove that you are the solution and then eventually win more business. You're absolutely right, Bob, because the follow-up in this analogy would be, so Mr. Customer or Ms. Customer, if I promised you that if we had your service business, that if we didn't fix it on the first visit, we wouldn't charge you. Would you be willing to give us your business, all your service business right now? Therefore, you wouldn't have that frustration of another vendor coming multiple times and it consuming your valuable time? And one of my favorite stories uh, that I like that you shared, which deals with your ability to actively listen as well as identify pain points through active listening and provide a solution, is uh, the story of how you won the uh, business of Disney, a global brand and uh, a business that you actively worked on to try to win the business. Can you share the story about how active listening identified their pain point and how you solved it? That's one of the most interesting and fun stories in sales using active listening that I can recall in 40 years of business. And the story was about 20 years ago, a Disney Corporation decided that they were going to try and consolidate all their purchasing of audiovisual and video equipment through one vendor. And by driving it all through one vendor in a, a process of soliciting bids and grinding out a contract, 
they would save a lot of money by getting deeper discounts through consolidating this business. So they started with 10 possible companies, narrowed it down to three finalists. We were the biggest in the world in this particular space at the time. So we were one of the three finalists. And they asked us to come out to Burbank, California and do a final presentation. About two weeks before this final presentation, a friend of mine who was just on the bleeding edge of technology all the time came to meet with me in my office and I saw he had this little device in his hand and he was uh, tapping on it with two thumbs and I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm answering an email. And keep in mind, this is 20 some years ago. And I said, well, how are you doing that? I said, what is that? He said, it's a Blackberry. It just came out and it's a wireless device where you can send and receive emails. And I said, wow, what a fantastic way to be able to be responsive, which to me is probably one of the most important things you can do in business is to be responsive. And I said, that is just amazing. I said, you have to show me how to buy one and use one. So he immediately helped me uh, buy one, got all set up, and I started using it. And I was immediately responsive to anybody having a question or a problem or an email. So fast forward two weeks and we're in Burbank, California. We were the third of three groups presenting to this panel of procurement people with Disney. And lo and behold, in the, in the middle of the session, one of the procurement people said, I have a question. If we have a problem or an issue or we want to place an order, or we have a question, what's your response time? How fast will we hear back from you? And I said, I don't want to be glib or arrogant, but what's the best you've heard from the other two groups who preceded us? And he said, well, that's none of your business. And I said, well, honestly, I don't want to waste your time. If I can't do better than the two groups before us, we'll get up right now and leave because I would certainly encourage you to do business with them. However, if we can be faster, then I hope you'll consider us. He said, oh, okay. 30 minutes was the best we heard. And I said, well, let me ask you this. If we can give you an answer in 60 seconds from the time you send us an email, or at least tell you during those 60 seconds when you will have the complete answer or order or information, but at least tell you we got it, we're working on it, within 60 seconds, can we have the contract right now? And he said, how are you going to do that? And I reached in my pocket and I pulled out this Blackberry and explained it to him and said, we're going to create something called DOD, Disney On Demand, at aviinc.com, which was our old website. And I'm kind of making this stuff up as we go along, hoping my employees will keep up with me. And I'm hoping that it'll work. But uh, I said, then eight people are going to have these Blackberries, me included. And if I see within 45 seconds the first seven people haven't responded, you're going to hear from me. But within 60 seconds, you're either going to have the answer or we're going to tell you when you're going to have the answer. So now can we have the contract? 
He said, let's get on with this discussion. And I didn't get a commitment from him, which I didn't really expect. And after the session was over, we all said goodbye. And this was a Friday afternoon. I got back to Tampa. Monday morning, I'm driving along uh, 275 in Tampa, the expressway. And my BlackBerry starts buzzing and vibrating. And I go careening off the expressway. And I look, it's... Alan Schumann from Disney, and he's sending me an email that says, how fast can you respond? And I said, I just pulled off the highway and I'm responding in, last, in less than 60 seconds, so can we now please have the contract? And we did get the contract. Well, it's not only an example then, Marty, of active listening, and identifying a pain point and solving it, but there are at least three or four times in your story where you also were asking for the business. You were saying, if I solve this pain point, uh, can I have the business? If I do this, can I have the business? What's the best that my competitors have offered you? If I can do better than that, can I have the business? So uh, another uh, question I have is can you teach that which seems to be instinctual to you the ask for the order ask for the close set up a situation in your question which leads to them saying yes uh, and that seems as though that's also a skill set that you have uh, is that something that can be taught? Well, I can't say that I had that skill or knowledge when I first went into business. But one of the things I learned is if I kept telling my story and then left, it's kind of like a group of people that decided to start a bank and they loaned out all their money and then they skipped town. You know, if you're going to tell your story, and you're going to try and get to know somebody, and you're going to try and understand what their problems and needs are, once you've identified them, if you don't ask them if you can bring this solution to the table, you've wasted your time and their time, and no commerce will take place. So commerce is about identifying problems and needs, but then actively presenting a solution and solving problems. Backing up to when you first went into business for yourself, what was your motivation to go along the entrepreneurial route versus what a lot of people do is work for a large business? Uh, what, what motivated you to want to be an entrepreneur and to take the risk of developing an enterprise? I had a lot of jobs and worked for a lot of people that I didn't really hold in high regard and saw that there were better ways to behave, better ways to lead, better ways to manage, better ways to inspire people. And I saw all the things I disagreed with and thought were wrong, done poorly or done dishonestly and said, I can do better than that. And if I have my hands on the steering wheel 
I can drive a ship down a better course. So you kind of took Warren Buffett's advice, which is to go to work for somebody that you respect and admire. So you decided to work for yourself. Well, I knew that if I failed, I could look in the mirror and know why. There was nobody else to hold accountable but me. And Marty, what kept you pursuing uh, after you became financially independent, which is the reward of uh, many successful entrepreneurs, what kept you going at it, wanting to continue to build the largest uh, audiovisual company in the United States and the world? Uh, what was your motivation? So your motivation to get into business was the fact that you you weren't working for anyone else that you respected or admired, and you thought you could do better on your own, which you did. But what what kept you in the game? I really enjoyed helping my employees be successful. If I could help my employees be successful, I would be successful. So my focus was, what do I need to do to make sure each and every one of my employees found success and found financial growth and found um, career growth in our organization? Early on, before there were too many employees for me to know every one of them, I did know them all. And they couldn't start work until they sat with me for an hour. And I got to know all about them and their family and where they wanted to be in five years and what was important to them so that I could keep track of them. And if I saw opportunities in the company, I could try and get them placed in even better positions that would leverage their skill sets and their aspirations. And that's how I rapidly grew the company in the early days. And I loved that. And I loved helping employees be successful. And I do believe if you can help enough employees be successful, you're going to be successful. And since I've sold the company and now teach at the University of Florida, I'm filling that void again by helping students find success and find their way from the University of Florida into what we call the real world. And Marty, it seems as though most businesses started by an entrepreneur uh, cap out or they reach their capacity at 20, 25 employees and have a hard time growing their business, no matter if it's a a product or service. Do you agree with that? And what magic ingredient do you feel as though you have that allowed you to uh, grow the business beyond that uh, point that usually becomes an unsurmountable obstacle for most entrepreneurs? There's a few points that I'd want to make in answer to that question. When I started the company, I was the first employee, so I did everything. And then once I started hiring employees, then I realized I had to sell them on a vision of opportunity and success. And that was my new role. And as the company got bigger, I had to continue to reinvent myself and 
reinvent my job description as new challenges appeared due to the growth of the company. So I think the biggest cause of failure in businesses uh, from the first employee to 500 employees is the inability of the entrepreneur to reinvent themselves at different places along the way as the company grows. Is that teachable? Or is that something inherent in your personality that allowed you to do that, to recognize it and grow? I would say it's somewhat teachable because I believe in what I do at the University of Florida in the entrepreneurship uh, program. I help students understand where these inflection points are and where people have been down this road before, including myself, and what we had to do to remain successful as opposed to failing and providing good examples, both through reading materials as well as through uh, guest speakers and guests uh, to the class who have been down this road and who understand how to reinvent themselves along the way or can explain where they failed to and how they ended up losing an entrepreneurial venture. I have been told, or as I understand it, most new enterprises fail because they're undercapitalized. Do you agree with that? And if so, how did you manage your capitalization as from a startup to uh, where you eventually sold, sold your business? I always looked at having the appropriate amount of capitalization or revenue is how fast I could sell. And I kind of viewed, I had this image in my mind that I was being chased by a big bear and I had to continue to outrun that bear. And that was what went through my mind every day that I woke up is, today I'm going to make sure that I outrun that bear and I am going to sell to a level that exceeds what the demands are for cash for other parts of the business. So you, your capitalization then came from sales. You didn't grow faster than the amount of sales you could generate. Well, at one point, I did outgrow my capitalization, and I didn't have the credit worthiness as a startup to borrow money from a bank. So some of the most critical selling I ever did was to my suppliers to get them to be willing to extend credit terms to me longer than their normal 30 days so that I could use their money a little bit. And I would have to continually sell them on the idea that if I kept my word and continued to pay them, even though I took a little longer than they wanted, they would not lose a penny. And as a result of that leniency, they would sell more product through me. So you used your suppliers then for your capitalization? Use sales as well as your suppliers. I did not take in any investment money. I didn't even understand how to do it back then, quite frankly, and nobody in the university system discussed it back then. And did you uh, take out any bank loans? Because they say banks will loan you as much money as you want as long as you can prove that you don't need it. Well, I, I, 
About 10 years ago, I invested in a community bank and joined the board of directors, and I did it for one reason. I wanted to finally be involved in a business that the more your customer wanted it, the less you were willing to give it to them. <laughs> and I thought banking would be the only business I could ever be involved in that the more my customers wanted it, the less I wanted to, to provide it to them. Banks want to loan money to people who really don't need it. Right. That's the safest risk they could have. So I decided to further this goal of being involved in owning a bank, I would sit on the loan committee. However, I found it so boring, I had to get off the loan committee after about three months because it was just a totally boring process and assigned myself to the merger and acquisition committee, figuring we would eventually sell the bank. <laughs> Which, did Which we did 10 years later, and we did okay. Well, congratulations. So, back to uh, my point about undercapitalization. Do you, do you see that as a, a big uh, point of failure for most small businesses? or? Yes, I would say... And how do you, how do you recommend addressing that? Do you recommend addressing it like you did through revenue generated as well as supplier loans or supplier terms? Well, I had a, a problem in that this one supplier in particular that I leaned on for this um, very lax uh, uh, credit line that they extended me in return for the volumes that I was selling they were sold to a private equity group, and the private equity group decided that they weren't going to allow me to do this anymore. And they called me out to uh, their headquarters and said, uh, effective immediately, you're on credit hold, we're not sending you any more product until you uh, bring your account within 30 days. And I'd been using about $100,000 of their money in what I would call extended terms to help finance my business. It was like a, a bank loan. Uh, quite frankly. And that put me in such a tailspin at that moment that I thought I would lose everything because I didn't have a solution. I was really relying on them. And that was the first time that I thought it was all going to come to a screeching halt. And if I hadn't gotten a, uh, two of my uncles to temporarily loan me enough money to put in the bank to get a bank to then see that I got money so that I could borrow money from them to then uh, clear that debt that I had with the creditor, I would have lost the company right then. So I understand that the vast majority of companies probably do fail because they run into problems like that and they can't find their way out of it. So but I was pretty perseverant to find my way out of it. So what's the teachable lesson then for would-be entrepreneurs or emerging entrepreneurs how to handle uh, a crisis like that, that had you not handled it, you would have been out of business. But not everyone has two rich uncles. I have one, I think. Yeah, I've, and again, that 90 days that they loaned loan me that money made the difference whether I made it or failed right on the spot. And I actually didn't know that they would help me, and I thought it was all over right then. But I was able to convince them that they would get their money back in 90 days, and I got it back to them uh, through this series of steps that I took. But it is, um, it's, it's really important. As soon as you get a little money in your hands as an entrepreneur, you think you've made it. And that's the first 
fatal flaw for an entrepreneur. You have to live frugally and be very, very, very cautious with your expenditures for a long time before you have a cushion to be able to loosen the purse strings. So step number one is you have to be extremely cautious with every penny you spend. And number two, you have to be extremely aggressive in your time spent to generate the revenue to make sure that you're outrunning the bears. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to check out our blog where we summarize the key points from every episode for your convenience. You can find it at artofbiz.blog. Lastly, I would like to shout out two people in particular who make this show possible. The first is Jay Rogue for recording and cleaning all of our audio. Check out his new album called Friends and Lovers, streaming on Spotify and all other major platforms right now. The second is Drayson who has produced all of our tracks that we use on the show. He will be dropping his first album called Transcendence in March of 2019.